Buongiorno, salve, buonasera, and benvenuti to the Salento Files. I'm your host, Margot Faraci, and this is Episode 7, The Case for Grace. Before we start, though, some housekeeping. This will be the last episode of the Salento Files for some time. We've guests arriving pretty much every week from now on. The kids are about to finish school. The beach beckons daily, and it is no time for sitting in front of a computer. We'll be here in the Salento until the end of June. Then for the months of July and August, we are in giro, as the Italians call it, touring through northern Italy, Switzerland, France and Sicily. We're back here for the start of school in the first week of September, and normal episode scheduling will return at that time. We are, of course, feeling very privileged about it all and can safely say that the early difficulties have been more than accounted for in the time we have now with people we love in such beautiful surrounds. Don't be fooled into thinking it's all glamour, though. Our accommodation searches on the internet begin with typing in the word camping. I'll make sure I keep up the Salento Files Facebook page, and uh, I'll be back with you in September. And please do keep in touch with me on anything in particular you'd like to hear about. And now on with Episode 7, The Case for Grace. On January 7th of this year, One of my closest friends got married. The wedding included 150 friends and family, a big knees up in a country hall in the Hunter Valley. I was here in the Salento. Months before, just as I was working up the courage to tell her that I was not going to be in attendance, she had asked me to help with some aspects of the wedding on the big day. So I really felt like I'd let her down. She's travelled all over the world at considerable expense and effort to herself to be at her friends' weddings, including mine. And here I was, not doing the same for her. When I did finally tell her I wouldn't be able to attend, she responded, as I should have known she would, with grace. Her own disappointment was shelved. She showed sympathy for my sadness at not attending and complete understanding for my situation. And I hung up the phone loving her even more than I ever had. Displays of grace like this are not talked about much. What a shame, I think, whenever someone behaves selfishly that we don't put a premium on good grace. Now, by grace, I don't mean merely good manners or kindness, although those ingredients are necessary in the practice of grace. Being gracious, in the sense I'm talking about, is about prioritising someone else's needs above your own, particularly when it makes you vulnerable. That might mean allowing someone to buy you dinner because it will make them feel good, even if you yourself feel like you're opening yourself up to accusations of mooching. Being gracious is learning how to not be invited and still be genuinely happy that the celebration is occurring. It could mean letting the other person have the argument because you know it matters to them. Helping someone, even financially, and not telling someone about it. Knowing what matters to someone else and providing that for them, even when it costs you to do so, that's grace. Now, being gracious does not win deals, beat competitors, give you an opportunity to defend yourself or get you a park near the sand at North Bondi. In our adult lives, there is little incentive to be gracious. As a result, I've had some hard times finding examples. One person who does stand out is Dr Isildun Abulash, the Gaza doctor whose daughters were killed by Israeli bombs and who has dedicated his life to finding peace with Israel. He travels the world on this mission and has said, The antidote is not revenge. If I want to get revenge, it will not return my daughters. The innocence of those girls must not be spoiled by revenge. I can keep their memory living with good deeds. 
One area we are extremely gracious mostly is in parenting. Fortunately, we're programmed to prioritise our kids' needs over our own, and we carry with us an expectation that we'll always do so. I'm not saying it happens all the time, but we try, and none of us want to be the parent banging on to their adult offspring about all the things we did for them when they were little. The most difficult way to be gracious is when you yourself have been bruised. If you can collect yourself and find a way to help the person who has injured you with sincerity and bona fide goodwill, then that's grace, and that's a pretty good way to live your life. Being gracious in defeat is a concept you'll have heard from the moment you played your first game. Being gracious in winning is just as important. My mother and my husband are the two most gracious people I've ever known. Mum would never pander to my frustrations in playground disputes. She would just ask me why I thought my antagonist might be behaving that way and then ask me how I could handle it. Gracious? Absolutely. Infuriating when you just want your mum to indulge you? At the time, yes. I do remember wailing as a ten-year-old, why can't you ever just be on my side? But ultimately, she set a good example. Mitch does the same thing. That means I have at once been the recipient of much grace in my lifetime and also know how hard it is to practice it well with such good role models around you. Now, being gracious is different to being a doormat. Being gracious is having the confidence to assert yourself as necessary, but to know that most times it won't be. And sucking it up, that thing that we're always told to do because you know you have to, is not being gracious. Good grace is forgiveness without martyrdom and compassion combined with selflessness. The situation you're in and the feelings you have about it depend on whether you're being gracious. One person's grace could be another person's connivance, as Edith Wharton explains of one of the key players in the book The Age of Innocence. Although he was seen as gracious, his reputation for discretion increased his opportunities of finding out what he wanted to know. Being gracious is very difficult. Manners and etiquette are set differently around the world, and finding a way to navigate between them as an outsider can be tricky. Fortunately, our life in the Salento provides many opportunities to practice. Active listening, dignified responses and keeping the peace are not valued here, or even remotely considered part of the necessary repertoire for social inclusion. Whenever I observe two friends, lovers or siblings having a discussion, I'm reminded of something that happened to me when I was eight years old. My auntie Connie, my dad's sister and therefore Sicilian, was babysitting me, which was a rare treat. She took me with her to visit a couple of her girlfriends for coffee. They drank their espressi, smoked their cigarettes and talked, all in Sicilian or perhaps Italian. I wouldn't have a clue. I was eight at the time and had a pretty good hold of Swanhilian English, but that was about it. The volume got higher and higher. The gestures became more animated and, in my view, threatening. Hands were smacked together, tables were thumped. There was no respite. Their unending capacity for commotion must have been powered by that particular type of breathing you need to do to play the didgeridoo. You know the one you've heard about where you don't stop to draw breath, but you just keep circulating the air continuously through your lungs. My Auntie Connie must have noticed my alarmed countenance. She took her first break from play in what seemed like ages to ask, Darling, are you okay? Fear had frozen me and I was unable to respond. True to form, she just continued right on. Don't worry, darling, she said. We do like each other. We're just talking. This is the way we have a conversation. We're really enjoying ourselves. I think of that every day here. At least now I can understand what they're talking about when all that noise is happening. 
For the record, it may look fascinating, but it's actually just as benign as our own conversations. But the only time I've seen Australians carry on like that is when we're drunk, which means you shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that we are cold and unemotional. Still waters run deep and all that. We're either more inhibited or more dignified, depending on whether you like a bit of emotion in your day or not. In the early days of school here, when Evie was crying her way through the school days and showing no signs of good grace herself, she would ask me, why does Sister Geraldina always shout at me? Well, some could say, Evie, you started it. But the more accurate response is that it's just the way these people talk. Scary to a newcomer, but ultimately well-meaning. After five months, our children are now fully up to speed with the Salentine communication model. In fact, Charlie is a foremost practitioner in his soccer team. At training last week, Mitch saw Charlie throwing in from the sidelines to a teammate. The teammate received the ball on his boot and then, accidentally I suppose, kicked it straight out. Charlie apparently ran up to this kid, waving his arms around and shouting. When pressed on the incident after training that night, Charlie said he had said to the kid, Che cosa devi fare? Tira fuori? No! Which translates roughly to, What should you do? Kick it out? No way! Of course, Charlie was laughing as he said it and thought the whole incident hilarious. Just another paragraph on a page in the book of his current lifestyle. The working title would be something like, Laughs, Lollies and Local Sport, A Boy's Adventure in the Salento. Mitch and I were, of course, horrified. We had the necessary conversation with Charlie, but we did have to acknowledge that what we would say in Australia, something like, Don't worry, mate, we'll get it back, is something you're never going to hear on a sporting field in the Salento. You see, there's an extended history here of invasion, murder, deceit and skullduggery. To be gracious and therefore let yourself be made vulnerable would have just been seen as weak, suicidal effectively. So the legacy of that is what you see now. People taking issues, stepping into conflict and holding grudges. Nothing will ever go unsaid. It is not considered undignified to show your emotions. It is considered weak to hide them. And your social standing, your pull in society, will be calibrated accordingly. But don't think that every culture doesn't have its own form of grace. The way the Salentini demonstrate grace is generosity. They'll choose an environment which is controlled and with outcomes that are known. Mitch and I are continuing to teach English and our services are provided free. What we've received in return, though, is better than monetary payment. For example, we recently received a parking fine of €100 Euros from the Rimini Council. Rimini is a town in the north towards Venice, and we've never been there. Welcome to Italy. No problem, says our student, the ex-carabinieri. He's filled out all the forms and typed out all the documents and is actively occupied in the challenging of our fine. Another student is the president of the local football club. Charlie's subs and official Otranto Scuola di Calcio gear has all been on the house, and I reckon we're getting the better deal somehow. We find it quite, quite difficult to accept this help. We've made the decision to be here, we say, so we'll have to find a way to navigate the waters. Well, it's ungracious in the eyes of the Salentini to refuse the help. It's taken as a refusal of their hospitality, and that's kind of the worst social error you can make. Yeah. <laughs>
That is the sound of my children praying. The prayer itself is the Italian form of what you will know as either the Lord's Prayer or Our Father, depending on which newsletter you subscribe to. They know it well because they say it, as we may have once said, grace, that is, before the midday meal at school every day. Now, you'll have heard the giggling which has infected the recording of this. I've debated about explaining it and have finally erred on the side of full disclosure. It is because of Evie's successful attempts at upending her brother's proper recitation of the prayer. The prayer properly goes, Padre nostro che sei ne celli, sia santificato il tuo nome, venga il tuo regno. Except that Evie has discovered that instead of saying, venga il tuo regno, she can say, venga scorreggia, and that if she does, her brother will collapse in laughter. Look up the word scorreggia on Google Translator and you will understand why that's funny. That's S-C-O-R-R-E-G-G-I-A. Now, to pull this conversation out of the toilet. This concept, this religious notion of grace, means something new entirely in the world we currently inhabit. And even within religions, and even between, say, Catholics and Protestants, it takes on different meanings. The Buddhist idea of loving-kindness is perhaps the closest thing to the grace that I've been talking about. Cultivating love and kindness first towards yourself, then your loved ones, then people with whom you've had conflict. In the loving-kindness Buddhist meditations, you are told to breathe out or send happiness and breathe in or receive suffering. What an achievement it would be if we could practice this loving-kindness. But while I admire grace in others and would love to practice more of it myself, I do not wish for a world filled with only gracious people. How dull. I mentioned before the importance of being gracious in victory. There's a story that circulates amongst Mitch's mates that reminds me of that. I wasn't there when the action occurred, so I can't vouch for its veracity. But knowing the main character involved, it sounds pretty plausible. The year was 1999. The setting was the Rugby World Cup final in Cardiff, Wales. Australia was playing, and as such, the pubs around the ground were filled with Australian pilgrims, my husband and his friends among them, in the days leading up to the match. In Banjo Patterson's words, perhaps, all the cracks had gathered to the fray. The air was filled with anticipation and the singular stink of Australians indulging their own senseless form of one-upmanship, drinking each other into oblivion. And one was there, a stripling, but he had no small and weedy beast and he was not, as Patterson implied of his own would-be hero, a humble, circumspect character. This youngster was in fact the exact opposite. The younger cousin of a friend or the younger friend of a cousin or something, he had little standing amongst the tight group he was travelling with. He was a hanger-on at best. Perhaps in response to this social insecurity, or perhaps just because he was a complete tool, he let the excitement of the day overcome him, and he started mouthing off. He stood at the bar, front and centre, and dared the surrounding men to drink with him, shouting that no one could keep up with him and that he would take them all. Most, in that understated Australian way, found the show amusing and were happy to let him carry on with it, without feeling any need to respond or participate except our friend Johnny. Known for his laconic turn of phrase, as much as for his appetite for a stir, and having absolutely nothing to prove on his drinking credentials, Johnny marched up to the young loudmouth at the bar, placed his money down on a coaster and said only this, 
All right, punk, let's dance. Five hours later, an ambulance arrived at the pub to collect the now unconscious youngster and take him to hospital. The kid was loaded in and the doors were closed. As the ambulance pulled away from the curb and took off into the street, Johnny ran alongside it, banging on the side and yelling, Welcome to first grade, son. Amen to that. Nome del padre del figlio dello spirito santo. Amen. See you in a few months.